Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Benjamin Jordan. And we're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 253. Ben is a computer systems and PCB engineer with over 25 years of experience in embedded systems, FPGA, and PCB design. He's an avid tinkerer and is passionate about the creation of electronic devices of all kinds. Ben holds a Bachelor of Engineering with first-class honors from the University of Southern Queensland and is currently Senior Product Manager for ECAD in Autodesk Fusion 360 and 16 years prior with Altium. Ben is also recently licensed ham operator. So Ben, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. It's, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so my first question is, since you're a recently licensed ham operator, what is your call sign? Uh, KN6GPS. I, so I feel everyone like that's in- one of the cool money call signs, you know, ending with GPS. I don't know how I get so lucky with that one, but it's awesome. Do they randomly assign them to you? Um, I think they're allocated by the testers in in batches, and then they more or less randomly are assigned once you pass the exam. They don't just, like, keep the cool ones for themselves? <laughs> they have a vault of cool names in the back. <laughs> they could. They, they might. But yeah, we have a lot of hot, uh, ham radio operators that, that listen to our podcast, so I had to ask. I, I used to work with a guy whose call sign was ham and cheese. <laughs> I, I think you have to do extra uh, favors for people to get that kind of call sign. <laughs> but actually, the first part of the call sign is um, has a meaning in a code. Uh, K is a letter... KN6, for example, is attached to the region that I um, did my exam in. Because I'm here in Southern California, they're they're all starting with KN6 here in this region that I'm in. Uh, So it's like your area code of your phone number. Kind of, yeah, yeah. It's, It's divided up. The first part of it's divided up geographically. And oddly enough, the the higher the levels you go to, the fewer characters. Is um, from my understanding. So I've just got the the technician grade license now, uh, but later on when I go for the general and advanced certifications, I'll I'll end up with a shorter call sign. I guess it gets more exclusive. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the uh, I guess Eagle Scout or the Grand Wizard version of ham operators? Like, what's the top of the top? Uh, it's it's advanced. Uh, this, so there's technician, then there's general, and then there's advanced. There's really just three levels. And basically, you get more privileges the more you do. So right now, I can just operate in the basic set of hand bands, uh, HF, VHF, UHF, uh, some microwave, but not much, and at limited power levels. But then as you pass the, the higher grade exams, and and for for honestly for electronics engineers it's not it's not super difficult stuff because you've pretty much studied it all already, uh, which is partly why I decided to do it. I thought um, there's things I don't know and I want to know more. I want to learn more about antenna theory and um, you know different modes of propagation and how you can use atmospheric effects and and to do just do different experiments uh but to 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 do that you you have to get a license obviously they can't just have anyone randomly doing spewing noise into the electromagnetic noise into the environment so it's got to be regulated and fair and all that um but you need to show that you know you know, more theory and more of the dangers of different things as you go to different frequency bands and power levels, there's things you have to have to consider. There was a guy I did work with uh, at Altium um, who was a, a, a very experienced, been an advanced ham operator for years and years, designs his own RF power amplifiers um, has a massive RF dummy load, and it's like you, you get to this 
you get to this stage where you have to acquire some pretty specialized equipment or build it yourself and know how to. So um, at RF, he, he, he said this thing to me one day that just made me laugh because so uh, it triggered my imagination. At RF, things get weird. And, and what he meant was if you're dealing, particularly if you're dealing with high power, high frequency stuff, um, unpredictable things can happen if you don't know how electromagnetic energy works. Like you could start transmitting from a power amplifier you just designed and other things around your house start arcing over. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like the, the story of, I can't remember who invented the microwave, but... The story goes is the the person was standing in front of a radar dish and noticed that the chocolate in his shirt was melting. And I'm like, well, they're getting bombarded by that same energy <laughs> that person is. Yeah. Yeah, I had a when I was a when I was a teenager, I had a friend who was in the workforce already, he was um, you know, six or eight years older than me and sort of taught me about electronics early on and got me into it as a hobby as a kid and he had stories of people um warming themselves up in winter by standing in front of a dish <laughs> and and not realizing that this may have implications later in life like not being able to have boys or uh getting cancer perhaps or some other more serious ailment but that was my first sort of exposure to what or mental exposure to what could happen in the rf sort of world hey that's just the old school version of crispr i <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so do you do you still um build and design pcbs i do i'm actually currently working on um because i just started at autodesk this summer uh at the end of summer uh, and and I I used to use and love Eagle before I worked at Altium over 17 years ago. I was I was using Eagle like many other people at that time. Uh, I I was actually still working on my bachelor's degree, so I was a student. And um, Eagle was the tool of choice because it was pretty easy to pick up and. They had a free version for, for students and hobbyists, and uh, that's that's what I could use. And I, I, I tried all sorts of other things, tried a, a very early version of uh, some of the other open source tools, and they were all just impossible um, it, at that time. I think things have come a long way since then, but... Uh, Eagle was it. So I just, I, I learned it, I read the manual and uh, did a lot of simple two-layer small boards because it was limited with the free version. Uh, but not long into that, I, I got a job at Altium because I was, my real focus at the time was FPGA, you know, coding in VHDL and Verilog and that sort of thing. And they had an opening for someone like me to work on FPGA IP course. So I did that for a while. And, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up becoming kind of the Altium designer uh, guru for a long time. And just this year ch switched to Autodesk and working back with Eagle again. So it's kind of like I, I went from a stick shift uh, sports car to an automatic people mover for 16 years and now I'm learning to drive stick again. So uh, I feel a bit rusty and rough, um, but I knew I had to had to sink my teeth into it and really learn it well. So I started with a pretty ambitious project. I'm designing a board right now that has a lattice uh, CPLD, one of the Mark XO family CPLDs at its core. And the, the goal is to build a board that can be uh, a touchscreen interface, basically a GPU for microcontrollers. So I got got some touchscreen TFTs from BiDisplay that use a standard sort of 40-pin connection. Um, that's going to be wired up 
straight to the FPGA or CPLD device that's got a bunch of SD RAM for bitmap storage and double buffering. And then hanging off of that, I could have any other kind of microcontroller that just ha all it should have to do is send simple serial commands. Say, load this bitmap in this position on the screen and, you know, receive back the, the touch sensor input from the user. So that's the idea. Um, it's taking me a lot longer because in addition to actually just doing that design, I'm I'm actually the product manager for Fusion 360 Electronics now. So what does that mean? I'm spending more time in meetings and sort of as I go through the tool, evaluating workflows and seeing what we can do that is going to make electronics design really a pleasurable experience for anyone who, who wants to give it a go in Fusion. So it's kind um, of my I've, main focus. That's where I want to go next is, so what does a, besides being in meetings all day, what does a senior project manager do at a Autodesk? product manager? So, okay. So because of all my years experience in ECAD in particular, uh, in particular with Altium, cause it's, a, it's probably the most popular in that sort of mid market professional range. Um, Autodesk basically asked me to come on board because they have they had some people who are from that industry and know it well, um, but they wanted to set up a dedicated role since since we're moving electronics design into Fusion 360. Now Fusion 360 is known mostly as a CAD and CAM tool for mechanical design and modeling, and people have been using it for driving CNC machines and laser cutters and water jets and realizing their physical products. Um, but, th but the big vision and, and plan for Fusion 360 is it's, it's the design to make platform for any kind of inventor or engineer who has a good idea. And there's, there's no product pretty much anywhere in the world except for, you know, I can't say there's no product, but increasingly we all know every product being invented now has some kind of intelligence in it, some kind of smart capability. So you have to have electronics. It just makes sense. And how do you get that? You acquire a very popular and loved technology, and that's Eagle, and then you you work with that to improve it and build build that into your main offering and that's fusion 360 but while we're at it because it's a totally new user experience and sort of design environment we get to redo some things and shed some of our uh, preconceptions from the last 30 years of ecad um, and we keep the things that are valuable and that people need for designing serious printed circuit boards so we keep great routing great schematic um, the ability to customize your workflow and uh, and use the libraries and the content that you've spent years building up or that you might download from semiconductor manufacturer websites you can you can keep all of that goodness and keep the content but do things in a more, much more connected way between ecad and mcad and so and then down the road hopefully other areas as well so that's that's kind of the big grand vision um and fusion was a good fit because it's the same kind of audience that eagle had uh it's starting from a free version for students and hobbyists giving them something that'll allow them to explore and learn and do uh do serious real designs um but all the way up into the into the professional engineers who need you know, they use these tools day in, day out. They absolutely rely on them and they need them to be efficient and easy to use, but also customizable, configurable, you know, all that sort of thing. So that's, that's kind of why Fusion was a good fit. You, you know, I have a, I have a quick question. Um, if we rewind just a second. Uh, so, so you jumped into Eagle uh, earlier on, and then you had, I suppose, a, a kind of a, a hiatus of uh, 16 or so years, and then you jump right back into Eagle. Uh, getting back into it, 
did you uh, what did you notice what did you see like was it significantly different was the user experience still the same was it uh did it surprise you or was it just like getting on a bicycle and riding again uh it it was not like getting on a bicycle and riding again um i and everybody's different you know but i will be i will humbly admit that when i haven't used software for 17 years that a it's changed just enough in that time that some some things were were different that obviously there's a lot of new capabilities that were added over those years especially the last four years since autodesk acquired eagle uh, a lot of additional power has been put into things like routing polygon management and of course the mcad integration with fusion um so all of that's kind of new in a sense some of that stuff's actually easier to use for me because it's just sort of um it's it it involves a lot more automation and uh it just works kind of in a way i would expect it to and then there's there's the other side of me that hasn't run a ULP script in many, many years, for example. And Eagle, as any serious Eagle user knows, that you get a lot of power out of things like that. And you get a lot of I additional... I keep Steven that every single day. <laughs> um, we, we argue about this pretty regularly. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, at the same time, my personal philosophy as a product manager is if you have to write a lot of extra scripts to get something to work the way you need it to, it probably should just be a feature of the software because I, chances are most people need that and it should just work and have it and follow the user experience paradigms of the rest of the tool so it's easy to find and figure out. So Yeah, that, that's Stephen's argument. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the exciting... Well, I, I can live with the cognitive dissonance of both because there's, there's value to both and not every engineer does the same kind of work, right? Some... Uh, so talk... Let's go back to RF for a second. If you're doing microwave PCBs, you have a very unique set of challenges that regular PCB tools, none of them that that I've been exposed to, have a good set of tools that cater to the microwave circuit board designer. You, you inevitably, those professional microwave designers have to use simulation tools and they end up designing their... RF layouts more or less in the simulation tool and then having to translate the data or rebuild it in PCBCAD for production. And that's a hassle. So in and and those are the kinds of situations where you might customize something or say, you know what, there's enough microwave engineers using this product that perhaps it should be an add-on that they can they can all get, they can all download it and add it if it's something that they need in their workflow. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think there's always a need for customization and scripting because everybody's situation is a little bit different and, and it gives you a lot of extra power. At the same time, I want to refactor a lot of what's got to be done in the past in ULPs into actual first class features of the of Fusion 360 electronics. So yeah, there's, we are actually working on that for quite a few of them. There is a, um, I think it was uh, in version six of Eagle. Oh, this is a long time ago, but, um, but yeah, because there used to be in the ULP, like how would you put a bitmap on an Eagle board? And it was, there was a ULP for it and so you had to go find and the, the ULP came with with it with the install but you had to know where it was well in version six eagle i don't know it was, was it called eagle cadsoft i think cadsoft eagle was the the original owner yeah yeah so they just added a a menu item in like in edit or whatever that just said import bitmap and it was just a link to the ULP uh, <laughs> built in to the menu system. So they didn't yeah. fundamentally change how the ULP worked. It just went ahead and did the steps of run ULP with that extension. Yeah, DXF <laughs> import was one of those too. And DXF import was is needed for custom, uh, you know, logos as well, just like bitmaps. It's also used for RF Board layouts, shapes. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. mechanical stuff. Yeah. 
broad outlines. Yeah. Uh, but but a lot of that stuff should just be baked in so that it runs a lot faster and it and while we're at it we can refactor some of those things and add add features that have been missing or enhancements that will make it a, a nicer user user experience so that's really a lot of what I'm doing as the product manager now is going through and evaluating where are we at where do we need, where do we want to be and what are the steps to get there uh, for prioritizing things, you know. So there's Matt Bergeron just posted this on the forum in response to a customer uh, just yesterday or the day before. That there's there is some foundational work going on right now to drastically improve um, performance, but also lay the groundwork. If you if you have this house, this is how I put it. If you have this house. It's one story, but you're renovating and you're going to build it up to three stories to be, to make it way nicer living spaces, more capacity, higher ceilings for everybody. And you, but the base house you have is good. You don't want to waste, knock it down and rebuild from scratch necessarily. Maybe there's some things about it you just really love, right? And that's what we have with Eagle. So. But to build up two more stories on top of that, we have to lay, we have to break some of the foundation and re repour and strengthen and reinforce that concrete. So, uh, so that's that's what's happening. There's a lot of work, um, and and in the meantime, we want to improve some workflows and add some features people have been needing for a long time. Um, Add, add the ability to bring in content from other places and, and improve the library workflow. Like there's, there's so many things and, um, and we will continue to work on those and improve those and release those new capabilities. But at the same time, everyone needs to know we're also work, doing some deep foundational stuff that's really going to unlock us for some massive improvements down the road. ULP 2.0. <laughs> you can assign any button to any ULP. That might. That's actually one of the foundational projects too, because the whole rest of Fusion, the whole rest of Fusion, has a Python-based um, API for customization. And and in the modern world, like we, we wouldn't cut off ULPs. Anyone who's been using Eagle for any amount of time has ULPs they've customized and scripts that they want to use to automate. So those have to be supported going forward. And that is that is currently supported. It needs some improvements here or there, and we're working on that. So that that's still there. It's going to stay. But we're also wanting to support moving forward. The, Fuse, the whole Fusion API ought to work as well for ECAD as it does for the MCAD side because it's – it's insanely powerful that API and Python scripting. So many people can't easily get their heads around C or C++ style language like ULP, but almost anybody who's sort of technically minded can learn a bit of Python and, and do some cool stuff. So that's why Python just took off as probably the world's most popular language now. So, I'm actually uh, looking at the uh, Autodesk Fusion 360 Python API stuff. Yeah, I, could, I uh, could see the gears turning in Parker's head as soon as he said that Python. I didn't know about that. I expect great things from you, Parker. <laughs> <laughs> Study um, it well. <laughs> I was, uh, that's actually, for me at least, that's pretty exciting because I, I heavily leveraged the ULP system in Eagle. And... Um, I do a lot of Python, so it's like that's that's I get I get I get the throwaway C in my brain now. <laughs> Actually, I'll probably never do that. I do too much microcontroller. I was about stuff. to say you you do embedded stuff. <laughs> I was gonna yeah. say I won't ever do that. I love C. And... Oh, they got micro Python now though. They well they do. That kind of <laughs> messes do. with my head a little bit. Just the yeah. idea. It's like wait, that just takes me back to pick basic or. Basic 52 from, you know, the 80, 80, 52 days. Yes, I'm that old. In fact, my first micro, my first microprocessor class was in college. 
when I was studying just my associate's degree many years ago, and that was a that was with a sixty five CO two. And even then, the, the students we were saying, "Come on, the six five O two is so old. Why do we have to learn on this thing?" <laughs> <laughs> the college had all this classes and equipment, single board computers in labs. They had it all set up. They didn't want to change a thing. Yeah, I, now I, I value that experience because not many people can say their first assembly language program was written on a six five zero two. Only old people like <laughs> me. <laughs> that actually just got my gears turning about when I learned assembly. So I learned on a nine S twelve Freescale, but that was that was also really old when I went to school. But like thinking about it's like trying to write a technical manual on assembly and teach it to people it's like no you wouldn't want to change that class structure you you might want to change it once every two decades right yeah it's a huge amount of work yeah huge amount of work um i guess arm assembly would probably be what you'd want to do now if you're a student yeah and it's it's a strange but important language arm assembly is uh it's, it's not like anything else I cut my teeth on. So I, I went from 6502 to 8051, 80, and then from there really just to C coding. In my career, I mainly just did C coding, so much more productive. But you want you still need to learn some assembly for two reasons. One, it's very character building. <laughs> It'll grow hair on your chest. <laughs> And I pause for effect because it's so true. And until you've done some, you can't really know why it's character building. And the second is, if you, even if you're, uh, even if you're working with quite a powerful microprocessor, there there are times that you need to go into what the compiler made and see and understand what it made. So you can decide, is this optimizing the way I want or is is my um, data structure or the variables I'm creating, are they actually matching in hardware what I had in my head when I wrote the software this way? So it should be understood at, at very minimum as a means of informing you while you're developing and debugging. But that's, and I, I don't think any serious developer would disagree with that. And if you really want to get the most out of it, you need to learn enough so that you can go and hand optimize certain things or write a function that you're going to call and see, but you need to write it in assembler because you want to be fussy about how it's implemented. And there are, there are some cases, particularly with digital signal processing, and there's a lot of microcontrollers now that, have pretty powerful features but you mentioned um you know anything sort of cortex m4 or bigger let's say can do some pretty powerful decent dsp stuff but if you if you want to get the most out of that without going to a more expensive part you have to be able to do at least a little bit of hand optimizing yeah i was, I was actually talking with our firmware developer at work just the other day um uh, and and he was mentioning that he he did exactly that where he he wrote a handful of snippets of code and then compared them in assembly and even though he wrote them differently the compiler just assumed they were all the same which was actually an okay assumption and 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 uh, he was able to optimize pretty significantly and just completely write his code in a in a kind of a wacko way but it made sense to the compiler and it was only because he you know dug that deep yeah, yeah. DSP is the classic case for that, though, too. Of course, I mean, if you if you want to do an FIR filter, you probably or actually, you know, even more so, an an infinite impulse response filter. You know, it's a, a structure with multiply accumulates and some feedback and some coefficients. You almost always want to implement something like that in assembly language, so that you know it's using it's using the hardware um, that's purpose-built for that to get get the most out of it. And why? Well, it, 
you might not actually need it if you're just doing audio processing it might be fast enough letting the compiler take care of it but that's just profligacy to use a 30 dollar word real <laughs> engineers would optimize it or write it write it in assembler knowing that well now i have tons more cpu cycles available for all the other stuff i want to do or for improving adding features to this product later on now, that's when you get those form posts that is, uh, how can I make two Arduinos talk to each other? Because <laughs> you need more horsepower. Um, <laughs> so um, back to um, Eagle and Fusion. So you were talking about how uh, it's your, your job basically of looking at the future and how does it all integrate together. Um, so how do they integrate together now and what's the plan of moving that into the future well um and this this is a slightly sensitive topic because naturally eagle is still you can still buy a subscription and get eagle and install it as a, a standalone desktop app but you also get fusion 360 and you can make the two talk together but we have put essentially what is what amounts to eagle inside of fusion 360 with some changes to the ui and that is is where um there's more possibilities because we've linked the whole product design into one tool set that um there's there's more things you can do for example between the mechanical assembly and the pcb cad that you couldn't do before. For example, in Fusion, if you've got your 3D PCB in Fusion in a mechanical assembly and the board's part of that assembly, but you've also got your schematic and PCB files there, I can move a component in, in the mechanical space. So I can move a connector or an LED to align with a, a light pipe or something else in the mechanical assembly. And there's a lot of little iterative tasks that are needed for whole product design like that, where you have to move things around and try different th things. Fusion 360 and its routing in the 2D PCB will actually synchronize that change and even reroute um, the, the parts. If you move a connector or a chip, it'll reroute that. To, to the best it can, of course, given, you know, constraints and, um, but it's, it's pretty impressive what can be done if you bring everything into one environment. So that's really the future. Uh, Eagle is being maintained in the meantime, because we recognize there's still people, you know, who rely on it daily. It's, it's their bread and butter PCB design tool. We're not going to just tear the rug out from under those people. Um, so it's not, it's not going anywhere in a hurry. It's being maintained. There'll be, uh, bug fix release type stuff going on. Um, but the new power is, and the investment is being made in fusion and, and we're not going to expect anyone to move from Eagle to fusion 360 until it's good enough. That would be just naive and, and unrealistic. So Can you actually test drive that stuff now? Like, is that in my comment? Yeah, it's, public, it's publicly, yeah. If you, if you have Eagle, if you have an Eagle subscription today, you have Fusion 360 and it has the electronics built in and you could, you could compare, you could use Fusion for an electronics design. There's a few subtle differences at the beginning. If you were, if you're used to using Eagle, you probably start just with a schematic and then you add a board. And if you put them in the same folder and they've got the same name, it knows to synchronize them. Fusion, you have to have a high level electronics design document, for, for, for example, and you go you know, to the file menu, you can create a new document and then add a schematic to that, add a PCB to that. Um, so it's kind of like how Eagle had projects. It's like an Eagle project, yes. Okay. Yeah, I have to test that out. That sounds uh, very interesting because I never knew about that, and I've been using Fusion three hundred and sixty and Eagle for. 
I, I've been using 360 since back when it was called 123D, which is what, like six, seven years ago. So um, I don't even know if, the, if, if, the, if 123D turned into 360. They seem similar. I, I think they probably share some technology, but I, but I wouldn't. In my mind, they're not really the same thing. But yeah, I, I think they, they probably different. do share some uh, some underlying technologies, like a lot of Autodesk products do. Yeah, I I was watching some of the videos earlier today on the Autodesk website <clears throat> in the in the Eagle portion about how Eagle kind of meshes with 360, and some of the stuff in there is really really cool. I, I have to admit, so I, I'm not. For any anyone who's listened to our podcast for longer than five minutes, they know that I'm not an Eagle user. But I have to admit that, like, I'm super jealous of of how it does integrate into Fusion 360 because I'm a Fusion 360 daily user. Um, I use it both for my home projects and for the every day at work. I I do a lot of 3D CAD and I also run uh, uh, our mills at work and I use Fusion for all of that. But the ability to to draw your PCB in uh, Fusion and then suck that into Eagle and then you have the outline and you have your mounting holes and everything and then you can do adjustments and they talk to each other actively, both Fusion and Eagle, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the whole ECAD, MCAD co-design paradigm right there. Um, and there's, again, there's more that can be done when they're in the same underlying in uh platform let's say so and this is why this is why we're merging these these worlds so the, the level of integration that that's between it, the mechanical assembly and the printed circuit board layout in fusion if you're doing the pcb in fusion it's it's another level deeper again of facility and automation than what you get just with eagle and fusion as separate sort of tools they work great uh but you get you get a deeper level of ability to synchronize more and have more insight into both worlds the mechanical and the and the electronics so where we're really going with that is you know there's a number of different things that we might and what we hope to enable is you know that there's many people in the future who, who are kind of super engineers who kind of do everything and even as it is today there's a lot of eagle users a lot of electronics engineers and electronics designers who still need mechanical CAD at the very least for designing all their you know 3d packages for their libraries for the parts and for building a good accurate model of this of the finished board for documentation for um, presentation purposes and heck there's even more you can do if you have your library your electronics library so symbols and footprints in fusion your electronics design in fusion and you place an led on your board and every board has at least one pretty much right that LED is is or can be automatically set up with an emissive property, you know, color and light, so that when you go into the Fusion 360 rendering environment, it will become a proper light source in the render. And so you could have other physical objects in your assembly like a light pipe or an illuminated dial on a potentiometer and you can actually see in a photorealistic way how this is going to work and will it look good in the final product or do we need to move things around or change what type of LED we're using or, you know, there's so many, that's just one little specific scenario, but there's so many things that if we join the workflows, uh, it becomes a lot easier and faster to iterate and get a good product out the door. So, I, I, I'm assuming you probably can't answer this question, but I'm still going to probe on this. Uh, did, is, is the goal eventually to make Fusion and Eagle one thing as opposed to two applications that talk to each other? Uh, it is. And, and um, 
but not to do not to do it in any kind of way that would harm eagle users today. So, yes, that is the plan. But again, I'll just reiterate: we're not going to remove eagle or stop supporting it until we are absolutely certain. And that and this involves a great deal of customer feedback, not just our opinion, but what people are actually telling us who use both. When they tell us, yes, you know what, I'm switching to Fusion finally because finally it, it's now at this stage where it actually has more that I need than what Eagle had and it works just as well, if not better. That's when we know, when, when our actual users are telling us they're moving, then we know we can say, okay, well, Eagle is... Um, it doesn't make sense to keep two products um, normally that, 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 that are essentially identical and mm. maintain both of them. Mm -hmm. I, I find it to be really exciting because a few years ago on this podcast, Parker and I were talking <clears> about <throat> sort of the future of, of Ian MCAD design. And we, we were talking about it, how cool it would be if in your 3D object, you could select, this is my PCB, and then go to the layout of that PCB, and it does it seamlessly in your 3D environment. And that's, that's exactly actually... what it does today in Fusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. That episode was, we were talking about Autodesk when Autodesk bought Eagle. We, we talked about that. And I think a couple of years later, that actually happened. And we're still starting to see more of that now. Um, that, that's actually thing is I'm going to try out the Fusion PCB stuff because um, that's I got some fairly simple boards that are mostly mechanical boards that just have a couple LEDs on them. Sounds like a very good candidate to try this stuff out on. Um, so another question, if you want to answer, Ben, is um, any like trends you've seen in EDA tools? We talked a lot about this ECAD, MCAD stuff, but is there anything else that you're starting to see that um, new feature sets and that kind of stuff? Um, trends in EDA. Well, there's there's an increasing trend for. I'll I'll I'll, I'll answer that by saying this. Okay, so it's 2020. ECAD tools sort of really hit the desktop right around the same time that MCAD did, you know, in the mid 80s, because computers started being made that were good enough to do it. Um, and back then it was and, and for a couple of decades, it was a 2D problem. So then the trend went into interacting with MCAD. And that's had maybe 10 years of development now. And we're seeing that really come to uh, a maturity with tools like Fusion. Um, and, you know, when I was at Altium, Altium kind of kicked that off with supporting Step back way back in 2006. They, they released, or maybe it was 08, they initiated this, they kicked off that for the whole ECAD industry and then everyone followed them. So um, now, now, and this is where Autodesk is a pioneer, is going beyond just sending files back and forth that make pretty pictures, but actually bridging that gap truly with the ECAD and MCAD to have native data and, and facilitate true real-time collaboration between mechanical design and electrical design, whether it's done by one person or done by teams. Um, so the so all along improvements in the industry have been made to all the other issues around designing electronics so that's things like maintaining building and maintaining your part library for symbols and footprints and 3d models now um, that's been a process that most cad users hate to do and most cad tools have some kind of quirkiness in the way that it it manages part libraries and and so there's there's that then there's the actual schematic design um and this is growing debate of whether you even need a schematic or not to describe a design because ultimately 
the net the, the end result is a net list that dictates your physical connectivity on the board and a set of rules for things like you know signal integrity and, and current capacity that kind of stuff all that sort of stuff and then and then as far as actual board layout goes um I don't think anyone in the industry has ever been able to f really do particularly well with automating parts placement. And and where all the technology and efforts been focused is in routing. So routing is very much, it is where PCB designers spend most of their time. So, of course, it, it gets the attention it deserves in terms of software improvements, usability, enhancements for resolving constraints and getting things done quickly and all, all that stuff, stuff for high-speed design. That's all really important. But but by and large, ECAD tools are at that place now where all of that's fairly mature. So I think, I think the trend now is in um, resolving some of the problems that are peripheral to the actual core design capability itself. That's still getting maintained. That's still getting improved and updated as time goes on. But there's all these other things around that. And ECAD MCAD was the first sort of obvious place to address those peripheral functions in terms of, you know, we've got to be able to collaborate with others in this pro overall product design. But there's still a lot missing there and a lot of opportunity and this this ability to collaborate and part of part of that is also getting from your design idea and your actual board layout to manufacturing um th this is why companies like macrofab exist now too because you guys see the market need and opportunity for okay well let's let's suppose you've got the best pcb routing tool or auto router on the planet well, that, that's nice, so you can get your board designed, but you still have all these problems finding parts, making sure they're in stock, getting getting your board made, getting feedback about your design quickly and easily to show areas where maybe it's suboptimal for production. So this whole getting to production, that's a big area, and a lot of a lot of focus, I think, um, is is on the industry or from the industry is on that but that needs to result in cad vendors like autodesk also um, working to close those gaps to make sure okay as much as electronics design is kind of a an introvert's dream job <laughs> right it is but you have to, at some point, work with other people or, or at least other processes to get this thing into a real product. And that's where, that's where a lot of the, I think, the current and future gains are for us. So yeah. Someone's going to come back and be like, no, I built an injection molding plant in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> so they can do it all themselves. <laughs> Yeah, there are people who will do that. This is slightly backtracking a little bit, but my last question will be if the greatest, one of the greatest things, at least for me, um, I, I won't say the greatest thing. And one of the things I really like about Fusion is, Steven's talked about this too, is the ability to basically go get a part at a distributor and pull it in. Um, the uh, McMaster plugin thing where you just type in a McMaster you can act, it actually like browses the website technically yep. I think is what it is and yep. so you can get the step file directly get it all in now we talked about this uh, on several episodes of the podcast but uh, electrical hardware engineers don't really like if a vendor gives you the part footprint a lot of times hardware engineers still won't trust that <laughs> and they will design it they'll design it themselves if if you can bridge that gap in in hardware engineers' minds of making that okay. <laughs> that would be like mind blowing. That's Maybe game actually like yeah, game changing. It yeah. is. Yeah. It it takes time. 
Okay, so um, I I was looking at this exact thing, you know, even even uh, as far back as, gosh, really, 2010, 2011, um, where we had set up a cloud-based online library that was accessible to every user. And all sorts of, you know, user analysis interviews, surveys were done. And yeah, lots of people then were saying, no, I, I would never use that on a production design. I always build my own footprints and symbols. And there's two reasons for that. One is personal preference. So I, I'm very fussy about the symbols and the schematic. I want to stick to IEEE 315 standards. And if if I'm using a discrete transistor, I want to I want to show it's a discrete transistor on the schematic by having a circle around it because that's what is specified in IEEE 315. So there's that that's part of it. And people say that's not part of it, but it really is a bigger part of it than they're usually willing to admit. It's just personal preference. But when it comes to footprints, um, my dad had this saying, right, about motorcyclists because he rides bikes. And he said, he used to say this to me all the time. He said, there are old motorcyclists and there are bold motorcyclists, <laughs> but there are no old, bold motorcyclists. And... PCB design engineers are like those motorcyclists. A lot of them have tried using some library given to them by a friend in the past and it had a mistake and it caused waste and scrap and (laughs) difficult conversations, if not being fired. So they're all really wary of content made by somebody else. But by now, I'd say um, talking to people in more recent years, at least 50% of them are willing to use those things and they have an open mind about it. But the key difference is how do we validate this? So there are there are tools out there that and services online that offer downloadable content or you can connect to it directly. And they have to offer some kind of quality assurance that those footprints symbols are accurate or give you an easy means of checking them against the data sheet. And, and so I've, in more recent times, I meet a lot more engineers, hardware designers who say, yeah, I use, I use third-party content all the time. I just have to check it first. And once I've used it once and I know it's good, I'll actually move it into my own personal library. And then, then I know I can just reuse it without thinking too much about it. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah, the personal preference thing, that's probably 90% of it. <laughs> now, that 10% though is is checking it and all that stuff because I think the main difference is between mechanical and electrical is 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 some companies TSOP 16 might not be the same as another company's TSOP 16. Yeah, you're, of, you're absolutely correct. They don't whereas, know. Whereas a 440 thread screw, <laughs> can't argue with that. That 440 thread screw is defined in a machinist handbook, and it's going to be the same. Yeah, that's why I always I always come back to the standards. If if the company who's producing the content is is doing it to IEEE 315 for schematic symbols and IPC 7351 for the footprints and the JEDEC package outline, so JEDEC. It's a weird thing because we tend to refer to, and this is something I'd love to like really nail the industry down on, but it's it's like too hard. Data sheets tend to refer to the JEDEC package registration, which is standardized, but it's not the footprint. It's just the actual semiconductor package. So we we talk about footprints in a CAD library and we say we're going to place an SOIC 8, but we're referring to JEDEC SOIC 8 registration. And and then the problem is the semiconductor manufacturers will use that 
and say that's what they're using, but they'll make some variation of it and change something. And so a TI SOIC8 footprint may be very risky to try to use that with a microchip SOIC8 footprint part. And really the footprint's actually um, specified by a different standards organization, again, the IPC. So it's like, who's going to corral all of this? That, uh, that's sort of that's normalize what, them all. That's what we need is some normalization. I, I wish that was the case. Um, uh, so, so what you're describing there, I've seen it multiple times where you look at a library and instead of seeing a footprint that is SOIC8, you see a footprint that is the part number of the part. And it is a footprint that only represents that part. And then you end up getting these libraries that are hundreds of parts long. I mean, you're it's, directly attacking me right now, Stephen. <laughs> hey, I'm attacking myself because I do the same thing. Like, I know. If a thing has and a specific you, and, part number, then yeah. And if you go, if you go to any company that produces libraries, like Altium does, like Autodesk has a content team, they'll strictly follow what the data sheet says to do because it's the only way to cover your butt. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. Yep. But unfortunately, it means there's tons of duplication. Where you know, really practically, by looking at the dimensions and comparing that and reading the fine print, you discover oh, it's a JEDEC SOIC8 standard dimensions. But for whatever reason, this company's policy is to call it out just for this specific part in the data sheet. Maybe the plastic's a bit thicker or something. Um, but the 2D footprint could be identical and they're, they're not giving us any way of knowing for sure so that we can easily reuse things and save a bit of time. So I think that there might be there might be an opportunity for software and machine learning to deal with that in a, a sort of automated way. That'd be nice. It would. So uh, I actually have uh, one question uh, left also because I, th I see... I see this this really ripe territory now that we have the 3D world and the E world coming together as one thing. Uh, so I do a lot of simulations at, at work and I've got a separate simulation program that's separate from my 3D program that's separate from my ECAD program. What would be great is if those were all together and I had 3D electrical simulation in my program, in my one program. Yes. And actually, that's another strong, strong case for unifying uh, the workflows into one package. So if I have, and, and we have that today with Fusion, if you do your electronics design in Fusion and you've got that, you can do it in Eagle too because you still get high quality models in Fusion if it's coming from Eagle, right? But Basically, if you're doing your electronics infusion and your mechanical infusion, you can now assign heat and, and uh, material properties will be assigned to the parts in the board. So all the little IC legs are actual, could be, you can say this is, this is copper or brass um, and you've got copper in the board and you can actually do a thermal analysis. So that, that kind of, Multi-physics engineering can't be done if you have separated tools. Not, not easily. Not easily. Uh, it involves a lot of, again, custom scripts and translations where you you lose data fidelity between one package and another, and it's you don't want that. So we, that is that is the big vision is to be able to also simulate. And in Fusion three hundred and sixty today, you can do spice circuit simulation. You can do on the MCAT side. You can do thermal analysis. Uh, there's there's some other, and I'm not I'm not so familiar with the MCAT in Fusion 360, but I believe you can do some stress type stuff as well. Um, so, so you know there's different physics involved there, and you can do rendering, which is essentially, if you think about it, rendering is kind of like um, simulating. It, it's like optical simulation. That's what ray tracing really is. Um, and so so I fully intend one way or another to build out the simulation options for 
doing more from your circuit board. You need to be able to do signal integrity analysis, power integrity, and thermal analysis is already there. So wouldn't it be cool if we can simulate the DC loads on a printed circuit board and go, okay, so what's this going to look like thermally? Now, as far as I know, there there are no tool chains out there today that can do all of that in one package. You have to go out to a, a dedicated or at least a separate multi-physics engine from your design tool. And um, it's very costly and hard to use as to, to make things even, even worse. So I'd like for PCB designers to be able to go, okay, I want to, I want to do some basic crosstalk, basic uh, reflections analysis. Oh, well, we're at, let's let's just see what our DC. If if this chip is running at 100% CPU utilization, what's it going to look like thermally in the mechanical space? Do we have enough cooling? Or do I have to relocate? Can I get away with what we've got if I just move the part to a different part of the enclosure? So that's the kind of thing you can do when everything's in one good suite. That's some uh, that's some serious power there. That's the idea. So Ben, do you have anything else you want to share? Any well, juicy future? <laughs> <laughs> um. I kind of already did share the juicy news that that we're doing some foundational work to pave the way for the future, and um, that's going to dr- drastically improve performance as well. So it'll make the editors much more responsive to the user and faster to work in. So that's a good thing, or whenever you can do that. Um, uh, really, aside from that, um, I can't give away too much else, but there are some new features and, and better workflows coming the way of the users for electronics in the in the near term. Um, there's, yeah, I, I won't give away too much. I'll just say, please stay tuned. Keep your eyes open for uh, it. one of the things. One of the things that actually is a benefit also to, to Fusion and tools like that that is based is that there's a very aggressive release schedule so there's always something new coming out and um and and so just recently in the last release and this isn't in the public release just yet but it's coming very soon it's 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 committed is um support for uh any kind of true type font in schematic and pcb so you could have so this is something eagle can't do but fusion can do is support any kind of symbols or text or fonts that you have in your system. So you could you could get a font that has, you know, all the little recycling logos and um, lead-free symbols and whatever you might need to put on the silk screen on your printed circuit board. You can add that in and use use this custom font to. Put I'm that going stuff. to make all my designators wingdings now. <laughs> you could totally do that. I think that's going to drive the developers at MacFab insane and there's <laughs> I started doing that <laughs> yeah there's there's a tool that's a bit like the character map i don't know if you've seen the character map or this most operating systems have something like the character map where you get to preview a whole font and all of you get to see all of the unicode symbols that aren't accessible from normal keystrokes and you can copy them and paste them in so it's got a it's got a little tool like that where you can browse the whole font and find some of the weird characters like yeah, the Greek letters and whatnot that that are super useful in um, electronics. So, so there's that. I mean, but this that's just a small thing. There's there's a lot. Um, there's a lot like that coming. That just overall improvements in the tool, in addition to the foundational work we're doing. So, stay tuned. All right. Thanks so much, Ben, for coming on to our podcast. Um, Where can people find more about you and and what you do? Do you have social media? Yeah, I um, I don't I don't do a huge amount, and I need to I need to ramp that up a bit more. So definitely reach out to me. I'm on on Twitter at Jordanite, spelled at symbol J O R D A N Y T E. Jordanite at Jordanite. And uh, I think the same on Instagram. 
and those are those that those two and LinkedIn are really the three places I I kind of hang out. Um, I'll be doing more uh, content-wise. I've I made literally hundreds of videos for Altium over the years. I'm not ready to really start cranking out videos on Fusion, but pretty soon I will be beginning that so people can um, look out for that on my YouTube channel, which is uh, my YouTube channel name is Schematica. And uh, there's not a lot there right now, but I, I would I would say please come and subscribe and I'll be... I'll be doing some videos uh, showing people my own thoughts and thinking as I walk through Fusion 360, especially on the electronics side. Well, you got your first subscriber if you don't have one right here. Cool. Appreciate <laughs> it. I, um, I have some. I have a few hundred subscribers, but I just haven't contributed much lately. I've been I've had my head buried. Well, Ben, do you want to sign us out? Sure. Um, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, and I was your guest, Ben Jordan. And we're your hosts, Parker Gilman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.